Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. Okay, that's a mistake. Genesis. We've entitled the series Beginnings because, unlike Revelation, Genesis is actually the first book of the Bible. And the title of this morning's message is God's Blessing. God's Blessing. So as you turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, let me ask you a question. The word blessing, what, what does that mean anyways? Uh, anytime someone wins a championship or an award, typically you'll hear them say, well, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. When, when we sneeze, we say, bless you. I had a friend uh, years ago who would always say, bless you, brother, bless you. He would, he, that was just it came out of his mouth all the time. But what does it mean to be blessed? What, what is that all about? What, what, what is blessing? Well, that's the topic of our text this morning. If you look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it begins with this term blessing. Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. Verse 2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And name them man when they were created. Now jump to the last verse of our text this morning. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. And there we read. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is synonymous. God's blessing. God's favor. That's what this text is all about. So sandwiched in between 5.1 and 6.8. is going to be discussion about blessing. Now, we kind of all know what it takes to gain other people's blessing, other people's favor, right? At work, you find that project that your boss is hot about, and you you make sure that you adopt that project as your project, and you do it the very best you can, and you do it in a timely manner, and you will get favor, right? It's called a pay raise or a bonus, or perhaps in your living situation, whether you have roommates or if you're married, your spouse, and typically there are projects around the house that you know if you get these projects done and, and do them well, you're going to get favor. You're going to get blessing. I mean, it could be as simple as just washing the dishes when you use them in the morning. Or doing the laundry or picking up with one another. Or like in the Pino household right now, we got a ton of projects. We got, they're called fixer-upper projects. And I know that if we do those projects, and if I in particular devote myself to those projects and do them well, there will be blessing. There will be favor. And the opposite will be true if I don't. So we kind of intuitively know how to get people's favor and blessing at school. If you're a student, you know that there's this test, there's this project, and if you study hard and you do well, you will get the favor or the blessing of your professor in the form of a very good grade, or even of your parents or grandparents in the form of accolades and attaboys or attagirls. Favor, blessing with one another. We kind of intuitively know how to do it. We're wired for that. But what about God's blessing? Because that's what this text is about. It starts off saying that God blessed Adam and Eve, and it ends saying that God blessed or gave favor to Noah. What what is this all about? Well, here's what it's all about. Genesis chapter 5 begins a new section or a new book in Genesis. 
Look at verse 1. Do you see where it says there, this is the book of the generations of? That term, this is the book of the generations of, is a key. It's like a bookmark. Whenever you see that in Genesis, it's a new section. Something new is going to happen. And typically, it's going to be the generations of a main figure in the redemptive historical work of God. Now, this one's interesting because it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And so we're asking ourselves, wait a second, I thought we'd just been talking about Adam. I mean, after all, he is the first human being. Didn't we talk about Adam? Yes, we did. But what Moses is doing here is he's going back to that first mention of Adam in Genesis 1.28. And he's starting from there, and he's going to give us a history from Adam all the way to Noah in our text this morning. And here is the purpose of the history. The purpose of the history is to discover how God's blessing can come back to mankind. Remember... What we've just been preaching on in Genesis chapters 1 through 4. We we preached the blessing, absolutely, of creation. Genesis 1.28, that actually Moses is kind of quoting here in Genesis 5, 1 and 2. God created man, and he blessed man, and he gave man this thing called the dominion mandate. He says, I bless you with perfect relationship with me in the Garden of Delights, the Garden of Eden, And I bless you in perfect relationship with one another. I give you, Adam, your wife, Eve, and she's beautiful, and you're naked, and you're unashamed, and you're intimate, and it's beautiful. You're in paradise. You're blessed. Now go rule and reign this creation as my representatives. But we also know about Genesis chapter 3. And we know that God gave his blessing because of the obedience But he said, if you disobey me, what was the disobedience? If you try to be like me. Now, that's what it means when God says you can't eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree that's God's tree. That's the tree of of having my own moral, ethical standards. Me being God. I determine what's right. I determine what's wrong. And he says, you may not eat of that tree. All the other trees are yours, but not that one. And of course, the serpent Satan came and tempted, and they fell, and they ate of that tree. And then came what? The curse. See, chapter 5 is written in the tension of this blessing and curse. And, And in the midst of the curse that we so richly deserve because of our disobedience, God promises one who will reverse the curse. One who will bring blessing to those who deserve a curse. And we found that in Genesis 3.15, this seed of of the woman, this offspring of the woman. When he says, be fruitful and multiply, this is going to be her child. And this child is going to overcome the seed of the serpent, Satan. And he's going to bring blessing. And in Genesis chapter 4, last week, we, we saw the first two that are born to the woman, at least recorded here in Scripture. Cain, the firstborn, and his brother Abel. And we're thinking, okay, are one of these guys going to be that seed that overcomes the serpent? Are one of them going to be able to reverse the curse and bring the blessing? And sadly, no. Because Cain, the firstborn, murders his brother. So we know it can't be Cain, he's a murderer. And we know it can't be Abel because he's dead. As a matter of fact, we see that first instance of the curse which was broke, broken relationships with God, broken relationship with one another in the marriage relationship, and death. And here is Abel's death. 
And, and when all seems lost, how can we be blessed? How can God's blessing come to God's people? At the end of chapter 4, there's hope. Because a new firstborn comes to Adam and Eve, Seth. And that delivers us to our text this morning. God's blessing. How does God's blessing come upon us? What is God's blessing? How are we going to experience it, his favor and his blessing? So point one, God's blessing. We see here that the tension is... How will the seed of the woman come forth? How will the seed of the woman proceed down through history to overcome the seed of the serpent? So Moses begins with Adam. And what he gives us in chapter 5 are 10 generations. 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And it's going to be interesting. After the flood, God is going to give us 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. That's basically what we're going to be preaching here. Ten generations on either side of there. We're going to be seeing here whether the seed of the woman, whether the blessing of God can come to man. And it's in the midst of the curse. It's in the midst of the curse. Because I want you to read with me verses 3 through 5. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So we see chapter 5, though it's a new book in Genesis, is connected to chapter 4 because chapter 4 ended with Seth is born. Chapter 5 starts with all the way back to the beginning of creation and then Seth is born. It's kind of like, you know, in 24 where it says, in a previous episode of 24. So it kind of catches us up and now... Seth is born. But I want you to note verse 4. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. But that's not the most amazing thing about this text. The next words are, what are they? And he died. The founder of humanity, the one whom God created to never die, to live forever in relationship with God, the one who 900 and some years earlier, 930 years earlier, God said, the day you eat of this, you will die. Hey, it took a while. 930 years is a long time, right? But he died. Now we know the curse is that it's death spiritually, certainly, but the curse is death physically. And so the idea is, all right, you've had this son, Seth, and he is born. Is he going to be the one? But read what it says. In chapter in verse 6, Seth had lived 105 years and he fathered Enosh. By the way, Michael, Juan, there's hope for you, man. You got some more years. You can have children. 105, all right? You're going to throw something at me? Is that what you're saying? Okay. All right. So he's 103 years old, and he fathered Enosh, but look what it says in verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. Not bad. But then what are those next words? And he died. And on it goes. You have that same formula down through the generations. You've got this formula and you're saying, wow, and he died and he died and he died. It's like, bam, 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 
bam, every generation gives life, every generation gives death. Where is that seed of the woman who's overcome the seed of the man? Until you get to Enoch. Enoch. Oh, yes. Looking at Enoch here in verse 21. It starts the same as the formula. When Enoch had lived 65 years, there you go, guys. He fathered Methuselah, right? Methuselah is the oldest man ever to have lived, correct? He, followed, he fathered Methuselah, but then he had this curious term in verse 22. Enoch walked with God, and he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other, excuse me, he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Hey, how come Enoch is not living as long as everybody else? Well, here's why. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God took him. There's hope. Now, I'm not sure what all that means, and neither are you. But I tell you this. What does it mean he took him? Where did he take him? But here's what it means. There's a man who didn't die. Now, how can I say that? Because if you look in Hebrews, and I believe we have that text on the screen, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found. So what does that tell me? There's hope that someone is going to reverse the curse because everybody up to this point has died. Even if they've lived 900 years, they've died. Enoch's the first one not to die. I love this. It's like this little mysterious almost like a trailer, almost like a code. There's the hope that we won't die. And Enoch speaks that to us. He speaks that to us. And every man and woman is is encouraged by that hope, right? Because death is not a good thing. We hate death. But there's this little hope in Enoch. He walked with God. You know what I could just imagine? I think Moses wrote it that way. Well, I know he wrote it that way because God inspired him. But can you imagine? So Enoch walked with God. What picture does that bring to your mind? Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God, right? So there's this picture, restored relationship, walking with God, not dying. But if we look at the next one, Jared, sorry, Jared, Jared had lived 162 years. He fathered, sorry, after, after um, my bad, after Enoch, Methuselah, good old Methuselah, had lived 187 years. He fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Wow. But he died. But he died. Oh, man, after Enoch, the next generation dies. They're not taken up. But, oh, friends, oh, friends, what is so wonderful in this is that we see that Lamech, Methuselah's son, has a son named Noah. And look at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah. 
Noah. Suddenly we have the formula broken here. Noah's name is given to us. One who will bring us relief from the curse. He will bring us relief from the hard work and the pain and the toil. Noah. Perhaps he's the one. Perhaps Noah, whose name means comfort and relief, and actually it means rest. Will Noah be the one who gives us this relief, who overcomes the curse? That's the question. The curse that we saw in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. No time to go through that curse. But could, but could Noah be the one who gives us this relief from the curse? That's the prayer. That's the prayer. But before we can find out whether Noah can give us relief from the curse, after we have these ten generations between Adam and Noah, we have a very, very sad history of the world back in that day. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. We see here in chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to verse 8, the increasing wickedness of man on the earth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, what is going on right here? These are some of the most difficult verses to understand in the original Hebrew. These these are tough. And there there is a lot here. But I believe what God is saying through Moses to the children of Israel as they were about to go into the promised land and what God is saying to us today at Palm Vista Community Church is that there was wickedness on earth during this time between Adam and Noah. There was great wickedness. Men and women decided to cross lines that they were not supposed to cross. And it caused great wickedness. These Nephilim would represent this great wickedness, great violence. There was man was all about building a name for himself. Man was all about getting vengeance and getting what he wanted. Man was all about himself. And the wickedness was great. As a matter of fact, when it talks about here the sons of God, you see that? In verse 2, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. (laughs) Over the history of Christianity, that's that's been interpreted many different ways. One way is that angels or demonic forces came down and intermarried with humans and they had these sort of, I don't know, Old Testament superheroes. I don't believe that that's what it's saying. Another way is that there are actually kings that are represented by sons of God. It kind of all rests on what does sons of God mean. And these kings were mighty men and they came and they took these women and they sort of imposed themselves upon them and they had sort of this, this arrogant race, kind of like, uh, you know, just a, uh, like tyrants and dictators and despots. And I, I don't think that's what that means. 
And what many, many people have interpreted this, many today would say that actually the, the sons of God would represent the line of Seth. And I know at this point your eyes are going to start rolling in your head and smoke's going to come out of your ears. But just hang in for a second and re-listen to this again. Uh, the sons of God represent uh, the, the, the line of Seth. Remember, Seth is the righteous line. And the daughters of women represent the Canaanite line. And they shouldn't have intermixed and therefore the wickedness was because the righteous line intermixed with the line of Cain. I don't know that it's actually saying that. <laughs> You're sitting here saying, so what's it say, Al? <laughs> I, I do think there is a mixture of this. I do think, I tend toward um, that there is an intermixing. Man is going beyond their boundaries. Like the woman who grabbed that fruit and, and doing things that they shouldn't do. And particularly, I think intermarrying is the one I probably lean toward. But I just don't think you can say daughters of, of, of man are just the Canaanites. Because I think that's everybody. I think what it could be saying is that you've got the Canaanite line that shouldn't be intermarrying with the Sethite line. And they are. And there's a lot of wickedness, but there's still a remnant, I think. Remember, Moses is writing this to Israel as they're poised on the border of the promised land to go in as God's people and what's one of the major things God tells his people not to do intermarry they had already gotten trouble in the desert when they intermarried and it brought great sin into the camp and we know in the future of Israel they're going to intermarry so I, I think it's around there but you can get lost in all that and if you are come back I'm calling you back now but uh but I think what the bottom line is man sinned and there was awful sin. There was lust. There was name, making a name for myself. There was vengeance. There was violence. We see it in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's the bottom line, my friends. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Man's heart is sinful and it's willful and selfish rejection of God. And this condition is universal. This is one of the the most powerful passages in the Old Testament on what we call total depravity. The doctrine that, that our sin is universal. It covers every human being. It's pervasive. It covers every aspect of our being. We're not as bad as we could be, but we are all sinners And it affects every part of us. And it comes from the heart. And so God, in his holy opposition to sin and wickedness, what the Bible calls the wrath of God, determined to judge mankind by blotting them out from the face of the land, along with all the animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. Read with me now, verses 5 through 7 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It wasn't just what we did. It was the intentions of the thoughts of my heart. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Wow. Verses 5 through 7 are like a trailer for the flood movie, right? Coming to a theater near you, 
a massive cataclysmic flood where everything gets wiped out and everybody gets wiped out. That's what 5 through 7 are. It's a trailer for that. And in that trailer, we see that God isn't just some accountant who is saying, you know what, man did this, so I'm going to do this, and is dispassionate about it. The Bible speaks to us of God's immutability. He does not ever change, but the Bible speaks in terms of God's anger, God's grief. That's what he says here. When it says that he's sorry, it doesn't mean that God is repenting of making man, because God never repents. He does not repent. He is not man. It's talking more about the sense of this affecting God. Now, you can't look upon the effects on God, God's anger, God's sorrow, God's grief. You cannot compare them one-to-one with man's anger and sorrow and grief. He's God, but he also came on earth as a man. See, this is, this is the part of this text that, that I love here. God is righteous and just and he will judge sin and it's not looking very good and the flood is coming but it grieves him it pains him see I think the connection here is to Jesus God in the flesh Jesus the one to whom Noah points Jesus the one who will bear the pain of his people Jesus the one who will bring comfort and rest remember Noah's name means comfort it means rest Lamech said may this one bring us comfort may he bring us rest from our pain I believe Noah is pointing to Jesus Corey will preach on that later and Jesus came as God in the flesh this is the difference between Christianity And every other religion, God is not just out there. He's not just holy other. He is that. He's not less than that. But God is also here with us. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. He wept knowing that he would raise him from the dead. He wept over Jerusalem. God is sorry in the sense of it does affect him. Now, you got to be careful. It's not one for one of how we're sorry or how we weep. He's God. He weeps the way God does. But there is a connection there. Maintaining his holy otherness, his transcendence, there's this eminence. We have Elohim, creator. We have Yahweh, covenant-making redeemer. And Jesus will bear that pain. Jesus will bear that pain. We just celebrated in communion. This leads us to point two and really to the answer of our question. How in the world... Can you and I be blessed? How can blessing be go beyond this superficial thing we say to one another to make each other feel good or we say when we receive a reward just so we sound humble, I'm blessed. God bless you. But how can it go to the profound point of there's a curse that will merit flood and there will, it will merit horrible, horrible response because we are horrible. And there's a blessing. There is a fountain. There's a place where I can go that I can rest from my neurosis, from my sin. I can rest from the pain and violence and evil and abuse of this world. There's a place I can rest from a, from a serpent, Satan, who's attacking me. I can rest from my own sin and brutalized conscience. There's a place. And that place is a man. God's man. Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in verse 8 of chapter 6. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
You see, Noah points us to God's man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, who will take the judgment and death that you and I deserve. Listen, that flood is coming. The flood of God's judgment is coming, dear unbeliever. It is not a joke. This trailer is about the real deal. It's coming. This is a trailer for the trailer. And the flood was a trailer for the final flood of God's wrath. It's coming. Repent. Believe. In the greater Noah, who will give us comfort, who will give us rest, who will relieve us from the curse of the land to give us the blessing that God originally intended at the very beginning, it will be restored. It's Jesus. He will comfort us in our pain by bearing pain for us. He will give us rest from our weary souls. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You can't find rest anywhere else. Anywhere else. Ultimate rest, but in Christ. And it's all by grace. See, that's the point here. It's all by grace. Because you're reading verse 8 like I'm reading verse 8, and you're reading about the wickedness from, from Genesis 6-1 to 6-7, and you're realizing, hey, Noah's living in this world. And, and the Bible says that all flesh, sin is universal, it's pervasive. Why did Noah found favor Find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Totally by grace alone. As a gift of God. Totally. God had grace on Noah because God keeps his word. And God will bring a savior, speaking back then, past tense, And God has brought a savior, speaking today, looking back at Christ's coming. And God will return one day, Christ the savior will return one day. And we live in that time in between where the savior has come, the rest has come. And it's come through Noah. You see, if you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23 to 38, you will see that God is very interested in reminding us and everybody else that these were all historical figures. This isn't myth. This isn't isn't a myth like many of the myths of that time in the Middle East. This is true historical fact. This is genealogy. If you look at Romans, or excuse me, Luke chapter 3 in your own time, write this down. Luke 3, 23 to 38. I want you to have your kids write down all the names from Adam to Noah. And then I want you to have them write down all the names from Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter 5. And see if those names correspond. Because Luke is giving you the list of Genesis 5 and telling you that Jesus is a real person. Jesus came. He was actually from real people. The line of Christ. You will see two differences in the Luke account. It will start with Adam. It will go to Seth. And then in the Luke 3, it will say Enos. Whereas in Genesis 5, it says Enosh. It's kind of like spelling it Debbie with a Y or Debbie, I-E. It's the same person. There she is right there. And then the next one is Kenan. The Luke Luke one is C-A-I-N-A-N. In Genesis, it's K-E-N-A-N. It's just like Kathy with a C and Kathy with a... Thank you. Same person. But everybody else is the same. Everybody else is the same. Here's the bottom line on the, on the screen. In spite of judgment and death, 
God's grace preserves the messianic line even while sin abounds on earth. Noah is the righteous survivor of the old world, what's called the antediluvian. Diluvian is a fancy word for flood, water. The anti-before-diluvian world. He's the lone survivor, ultimate lone survivor as far as the seed. Now he brings with him his sons, the wives, and there will be... See, see Noah is the second Adam. If Adam's the founder of humanity by God's hand, Noah is the refounder of humanity because <laughs> he wipes it all out. What does that tell us? His righteous wrath. He's serious. This is sort of a trailer for the final judgment. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Praise God. The righteous seed goes through. The New Testament calls Noah a herald of righteousness. More to come on that when Corey preaches on it. God displayed his grace by giving Noah his favor. Based not on Noah's righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness. God gives his favor and his grace and his blessing on the screen. God gives his blessing to those who place their faith in Jesus. Here's the appeal, church. God's favor is yours in Christ. He alone gives you relief from the curse, comfort from the pain of this fallen world, and rest from the judgment of sin and death. God has made a way for you to walk with him in Christ like Enoch walked with God. This means intimate fellowship with him daily based on Christ's righteousness. See, these two truths... God's favor is yours in Christ, and that God has made a way for you to walk with him in Christ. He blesses you in Christ. He makes a way for you to walk with him in Christ. These are the high ground. These are the high ground from which we fight the fight of faith that overcomes the serpent, that overcomes the flesh, that overcomes the wickedness of this world in order to fulfill God's call on our lives to be his representatives on earth, preaching the gospel, helping the the, the poor, healing the sick, Being light in darkness. Some of you may be fighting discouragement this morning. You're discouraged by the evil you see around you, that you see in the headlines, or in your heart, or in your home. Jesus is here by his spirit to comfort you and to speak a better word of faith to you in this world to come. A a word of promise that one day you will be with him in the new heavens and the new earth with no more sin and no more evil. And you'll have this comfort now. And then with that comfort that he alone provides, you'll be able to comfort those who are in affliction around you. Those who are desperate, in need of grace and comfort. This is God's call on us. Others of you may be fighting condemnation over your failures in relationships, career, outreach, or even toward God. God, the Holy Spirit, is here to comfort you as well and me with the truth that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There isn't. There's just the gift of repentance and grace as you humble yourself before God's mighty hand and experience Him lifting you up. Still others may be fighting anxiety. You have the temptation of unbelief over life situations. You look at your family. There may be some dads here that are saying, Oh, Al, if you just knew where my parent, where my children are today, I'm so anxious. I feel, I feel contemned. I feel anxious. I, I don't know what to do. I celebrate Father's Day. I feel like grieving today. Jesus is here to encourage you, my friends. 
that he has won the victory. Though life's situations are screaming in your ear and there's legitimate sorrow, Jesus has borne that sorrow and borne that pain and he's here to speak to you as your father, as your father, your heavenly father. He cares for you. He will bear your pain for your sons and your daughters. He will bear your disappointment, your anxiety, your fear. Daddy has you in Christ. He is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's with you so that you may then turn and care for others, starting with your own family members. In a moment, we will close in prayer and worship in song. I, I just invite you, let this truth wash over you this morning as God ministers to us by his word, through his spirit, because of what Christ has done. And it's all by grace, dear church. It's all by grace. Let us pray. Worship team, would you join me? Father, I pray that you would please work your word in us, that your blessing comes to us, not because we earn it, we cannot earn it. Your blessing comes to us through Jesus Christ, your man. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, God in the flesh. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Lord, I pray you'd open blind eyes. I pray that you would open eyes that have become blinded to this truth. That you would take weary, striving hearts and communicate your grace, your favor, that we can walk out of here saying, I'm blessed, and with that blessing, Lord, we'd run to you, and we'd love you, and we'd speak that blessing to others. May we treasure you, Lord, for you are the greatest treasure, the richest treasure we could ever have in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand, let us sing that confession, how rich a treasure.